Welcome to another episode of How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, here today with Josh Kessler. How are we doing, Josh? Doing good. Freshly yeah. freshly caffeinated. That's right. I, I, uh, I can't come into an episode without a fresh cup of coffee here, so mm. it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. <laughs> so today we are <clears throat> talking about Song of Solomon, or more aptly titled... Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Yes. So we've come to the end of the mm-hmm. wisdom literature section in our CBR reading. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's the shortest of the wisdom books. Yes. Um, it's mm-hmm. probably, let's just be real, the most awkward. It is. It, I think, uh, and I think, I mean, I think the nature of the fall, right, affects a lot of things and um, even Christian subculture, the context of of just talking about sex, right? I don't know what your experience has been like, but even growing up in a youth group where it's like, if if you're flirting, like you're you're in trouble. You know? yeah. <laughs> like we can't even. Seems like we can't even touch the nature of of talking about sex. And so, a book that's very explicit about the nature of love and sex is going to feel awkward to a lot of us. I think. Yeah, I remember the the very first year I was teaching Bible classes at ICS. Um, the freshman Bible class was an Old Testament survey class. Uh, and the easy thing to do would have been to not touch Song of Solomon with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> but I was up for the challenge, uh, having just freshly graduated from seminary. I'm like, ah, yeah. we'll make this work. But it was exactly what you would expect it to be. Just <laughs> not not quite ready for uh, some of these descriptions that we, we see here. And uh, the f- I think I did a good job giving them the framework, but that doesn't mean... It went very well. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean there was any lack of awkwardness, right? Yeah, no, there's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm looking at the text in front of me right now, and right at the end, you know, uh, Song of Solomon 8.8, 8, we have a little sister, and she does not yet have breasts. Mm. Just, you know. There it is. Life verse. Right. Not, right off the bat, verse one, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going, we're going there. We're going you know? there. <laughs> so um, let's let's probably situate we, everybody. Let's situate everyone. So as we were okay. um, we were pre gaming, um, talking about what we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to do for listeners. We're going to do two parts. One, we're going to just going to talk about the the location of this book in the Bible. A mm-hmm. little bit about Hebrew poetry. We've touched on that in other episodes. A yeah. little bit more about love poetry. Uh, and then we'll talk about how it's been interpreted and how we could best make sense of it as we do our CBR reading through this book. Yeah, so, that's great. Um, let's just jump right in with the title. I mean, it, in most Bibles, it says Song of Solomon. Uh, we said it should be Song of Songs. Yes. Um, what does Solomon have to do with this book? Yeah, Solomon is uh, is most likely just a character in the book and not likely the author of the book. Mm. Um, and we can we can kind of take that even from the sort of the content, the the um, some of the thub, sub sub messages of the book. Uh, which would be Solomon's downfall was the fact that he had many wives, right? And yeah. he had this huge harem. And so uh, it's the book is almost pitting that sort of relationship to love and sex with these two lovers who are very intimately devoted and faithful to each other. Mm-hmm. And so it's highly unlikely that Solomon wrote the book. I mean, for other reasons as well, but that's that's a big one. Yeah, and then uh, the fact that we have it 
in the wisdom literature is probably why part of the reason that it's, that it's there is because Solomon is a character in the book, and that's part of the reason it's paired with wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the reasons we can we can make sense of why it's where it is in the Bible and why Solomon probably didn't write it. Yeah. So yeah, I think just to get slightly more technical, but to just sort of put the nail in the coffin on Solomon writing, it would be, um, it uses several Persian loan words that would be too late for Solomon to have been acquainted with. Yep. Um, doesn't mean Solomon couldn't have written a base version and then later on it gets updated. Or there could have been little bits and excerpts that Solomon wrote that were kind of compiled, pieced together by whoever the author was. Yeah. But even with Solomon, we're talking about if he did write it, he had to have written it very early as a young man yeah, or very late as a repentant older man. Right. But even then, it's very clearly not depicted as an older man. It's depicted as, for the most part, young lovers. We've got a woman talking. We have a man talking. Mostly the woman talking. Yeah. Um, mostly from her perspective. Um, it's not to say Solomon couldn't have written things from a woman's perspective. A good writer can write good characters no matter what perspective. Totally. Uh, but it doesn't read as a first person. Solomon's falling in love with someone and he's regaling them with love poetry. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I think the the language the the poetic language and descriptions uh that we get in the book i think are are more aptly described through the female perspective and yeah i think that's part of what makes this book really beautiful actually too yeah and i think we one of the things we talked about earlier it makes it a great companion to the early part of proverbs it does yeah we're getting a father's perspective on sex relationships wisdom to his young sons Mm -hmm. this is not necessarily a mother to her young daughters but it is a a female perspective and she addresses the daughters of uh, jerusalem right to the to the fellow um daughters of jerusalem saying don't awaken love before the proper time yeah. Right. And she she knows from experience and she's describing the feelings of love that are so powerful and um and magnetizing that if you do, you will not be able to control those impulses of love. And yeah. that's part of her message um to her fellow uh fellow daughters of Jerusalem. Yeah, so that kinda that so. gives us a general feel for it. Um the mm-hmm. other we've talked about Hebrew poetry in other episodes. Listeners can pull up the ones on uh, we talk about it a little bit in Proverbs. Ben and I have talked about it in relation to Psalms. You and I talked about it in relationship to Ecclesiastes. So just right. the general nature of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry as opposed to English poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is now a more specific It's love poetry. It's um, in the ancient world. It's most closely related to Egyptian love poetry for whoever wants to look up some Egyptian love poems and do some comparisons. Right, right. Uh, but it, the thing that... <clears throat> If we're being honest, the thing that most people will latch onto as difficult, humorous, or awkward is these comparisons of the other person. So I'm, I'm looking <laughs> right. at chapter four right now. Yeah. Uh, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. So far, so good. Right. Uh, your eyes are doves. Okay. Not not no, very not, clear to yeah. uh, modern ears behind no. your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And from there on, we're just lost. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes oh my. that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins. And not mm. one among them has lost its young. And I, I could go on, but it, there's, you can Long find- Long, weird way to say you have nice teeth. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which today <laughs> is not the best metaphor, but if we, you know, if we, or not metaphor is not the word I'm looking for, best compliment. It right. would, goes without saying you should have good teeth, but in an ancient world that doesn't have dentistry and now it's actually a big deal to point something like that out. That's true. That's um, true. So context what, matters. Context right? matters. Let's. So if, I think in looking at these, we could probably just draw out um, one of the differences with Hebrew poetry uh, over English poetry is it's mm. not all visual. Yes. We're very visual, Western-minded, so we're thinking her hair must look like a flock of goats, as opposed to maybe that's the comparison of feel that's being right. drawn out. There's of. something tactile about yeah. what he's describing, um, and something very experiential versus just trying to visually describe something that you see. Right. Right. So yeah, you, you, if you get online, you can Google pictures of the woman from Song of Solomon, just this <laughs> yeah. ridiculous composite yeah. image, yeah. which if we did take it literally as descriptions of... You'd end up with a pretty crazy picture. Right. <laughs> no, so we'll encourage listeners, you can do that on your own time and just see what this would look like. But as we're pointing out, it's not really always about looks so much as all sorts of sensory experiences. Yes, exactly. Um, The other thing we could situate here is that um, a lot of the descriptions are very agricultural or very landscape oriented or very agrarian. Mm -hmm. They're not, we really, other than her mentioning that she's got darker skin, probably yeah. can't piece together what she looks like and also can't really piece together what the man looks like either. Although they're supposedly describing each other to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it kind of gives us a, there's a sense that there's symbolism going on in a bigger picture sense than just, <clears throat> this is poetry. So it's symbolic anyways. Right. Yeah. It it seems like we're getting a window not just into their relationship, but sort of into the nature of love and sex and those experiences as God designed them. Mm. Um, and so that's, I think that becomes really clear as you read the, the very awkward language we were talking about. Yeah. But yeah. So I think, I think that's a great thing to point out. Yeah. So I think I, this kind of, kind of wraps up the first part of what we're getting at is this mm-hmm. is very clearly love poetry and to yes. pretend that it's not, or it's some, yeah, let's, something other than just what it looks like on the surface. Yeah, it is um, is not doing the text justice. So if God's given this to us, right in His Word, there's a purpose for it. There's a reason for it, and so with that, we can get into some interpretive um, sort of methods for how to read this book well. Yeah, because yeah. I think we once we've acknowledged, yes, this is it, it may be weird to us on the surface because we're not ancient, we're not Eastern in a lot of right. cases, we're not right. familiar with some of these landmarks. And, but, and that's to underscore the difficulty of those who actually had to interpret this Hebrew poetry. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. It's not easy to interpret. And yeah. so that's part of the reason some of the language is awkward to us. It just doesn't it's very difficult to make it flow, to make it make sense um, from the original language. Yeah. So So with all that in mind, in the history of Christian thought, there have been various ways of interpreting that, but one very clear way At least half a dozen. At least half a dozen. (laughs) Um, The the one way with staying power has been to connect it in either an allegorical or a symbolic or a, and those are, I'm not using those words synonymously. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe we could just say there's a Christological way of reading this where it connects it to Jesus. But the way we kind of get there is we jump to 
Paul and the way he describes uh, there's the mystery of the mystery of Christ Christ in the church. church and it's this bridal imagery and so mm-hmm. then we say well there's this one place in the Old Testament with really explicit bridal imagery and sexual imagery yeah so then that must be about this and we connect it like that mm-hmm. uh, but there's a good way and a bad way to do that so let's let's differentiate those what's the yeah yeah so I think um, it's probably sometime in the 19th century the 20th century we're going to get more of a literal interpretation of Song of Songs. And so I think that's kind of the approach that we're going to take as we talk about this for the next 10, 15 minutes. Um, But to the point of the allegorical interpretation, I think that can help us in terms of understanding what we just said, which is the relationship between Christ and the church, but more so probably from our perspective, looking toward Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the book can help us understand the nature of being in relationship with someone that we long for, Mm -hmm. someone that we can't quite see yet, but we have glimpses of, right? Someone that, uh, our our Lord and Savior, the the one who will complete us, the one who will satisfy our every need, but we're not there yet. And so there's even this, the the language of, of disappointment, even anticipation, um, uh, of lovemaking with the lovers is like sort sort of points us to this greater reality of even in the most beautiful, lovely, fuf- somewhat fulfilling re- you know marriage relationships, there is disappointment, there is lack, mm-hmm. and so I think that in the allegory uh, in the allegorical sense can point us to the final fulfillment of being complete and satisfied in in love with Jesus when we do get to see him face to face. Yeah. And so um I think that's one really good overarching sort of way that we can read this book and and as we as we get through these eight chapters to keep remembering that even the best of descriptions in here really pales in comparison to what the completion and the love and the satisfaction that we will find when we're with Jesus face to face. Yes, I think so. I think you make a good point there because what, what you're what you're helping listeners understand is we're using the mystery of how we relate to Christ, um, and then we're looking at Song of Solomon, and we're using Song of Solomon to understand that aspect of our Christian life. Yeah, rather than taking that aspect as a given and saying like, "Well, Christ relates to the church like this," so now well, let's go back and make sense of Song of Solomon. Yes, that's right. We're we're using the, we're going from text to theology, right, or allegory, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. If we were, then we would probably start reading things into the text that aren't there. Right. And, and we don't want to do that. That's where people get uneasy about even the word allegory is it, it seems mm-hmm. like it's a it's opening up the door to, well, anything in here can symbolize anything. Yeah. And it, to be fair, when we do s- say allegorical reading, we are pushing for symbolism really in every line to some degree. Yeah. Which is different than saying in a general Christological sense, mm-hmm. two lovers longing for one another is a picture of Christ in the church. Yeah. That's, those are two different ways of going about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the helpful thing to remember is that we, we want to dig into the text. We want to focus on what the text is saying and then use that as a window to look at our relationship with, with Christ. Yeah. And the final fulfillment of that. 
Yeah. So, and so in some sense that, that is a, it's going to emerge over the course of our reading. Yes. It's going to take us about a week to get through this book. And so yep. um, in some places it, it's, if you push it too much, it, the symbolism gets a little awkward, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I, our minds would be a little bit blown by the way some of the Puritans were just totally comfortable with all of this double entendre as a way of describing their walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. And today we're like, oh, yeah. no, even for a sex-obsessed culture, we're right. not exactly comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, I think to the point earlier uh, that we made at the beginning, it's uh, it's an unfortunate outworking of the the Christian subculture that's mm-hmm. really uncomfortable with talking about sex and, and the nature of it, right? I think most of, a lot of us, I don't want to say most of us, but a lot of us heard just about the negative, the negative part of, you know, having sex before you're married or, or doing those things before you, and we never hear about the goodness of the design of sex and the way that mm-hmm. God made it. And I think that's one beautiful thing about this book is it's it's describing for us um, the the nature of love and sex and all of its beauty and within the confines of marriage. And uh, I think we need to hear that. Like the church needs to hear that mm-hmm. for sure. Like there there's there is beauty and goodness in the way that God has designed this. And um, I think that's another thing we could take away from reading this. Together. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point that it's it's one thing to have it affirmed doctrinally in an epistle or in another place in the New Testament, or mm-hmm. we go back to the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and you have yes. it affirmed there, but it's very, you know, in the narrative, it's affirmed that way. But this is the more emotional, evocative way of affirming it. And it mm-hmm. puts it right in the middle of the wisdom literature, so it connects sex to a wisdom issue. And then it also it puts us in the position of, like you said, we have to treat it as a good. It's not a, as some of the early church fathers would have treated it as a, kind of a necessary evil, or right. even something to be avoided. And then right. it, you have to read it in an overly allegorical sense, because it can't just be straightforward love poetry. Right, because otherwise we're really uncomfortable. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's almost as if we're as as we're reading through this this next week we're going to be trying to on the one hand read slowly make sense try to make sense of some of the images mm-hmm. think about the fact that maybe they're not images maybe they're tactile um, put ourselves as much as we can into an agrarian culture yeah and treat it as legitimate love poetry yes and then from there move to how does this help us understand longing desire yeah, I think I want to make a point about the goodness of the design of love and sex as God has made it within the context of marriage and and that relationship. So I think we can go too far in one direction mm-hmm. and we can idolize marriage, which is I think something the church has done unfortunately and say this is the ultimate thing. Getting married, having kids, like that's the ultimate that's the ultimate thing. Song of Songs won't let us do that, right? And I think we can go too far in the other direction, like we were saying earlier, with Christian subcultures who, like, just want to avoid the the nature of 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 this topic because it does evoke temptation, right? Mm-hmm. So that means, well, we've got to. That means we have to talk frankly about temptation, and and um, and so, not talking about it will just avoid that completely. Right. Well, Song of Songs won't let us do that either. 
So I think there's this beautiful middle ground that Song of Songs is is getting us to in saying that within the context of love, uh, sex, and marriage, like, this is good. In fact, expressing our desire for, whether we're single, for maybe someone we're dating, or the desire for marriage in general, um, or uh, expressing that desire to our spouse, the, the explicit language that's in here. Those are good things, and we can do that honestly and frankly and beautifully without idolizing marriage and without uh, shaming the goodness and the design of sex that God made, right? For us to enjoy. This is to be enjoyed. That's, uh, I would say there's, those are a couple sub-themes in here, delight and desire, right? So it's really getting at the... Um, the delight that a uh, husband and wife have in one another and their, their desire for each other. And those are good things, right? So I think, and I think ultimately, hopefully, what this helps us do is, like I said earlier, even in the best of marriages, in the best of relationships, there's still going to be disappointment. There's still going to be brokenness. There's still going to be this lack. There's this God-sized hole in our hearts that only He can fill, and so even the best, the most beautiful, the most lovely of marriage relationships is still going to fall short of that. And so hopefully what the goodness of a marriage relationship does is it points us to the even greater goodness of being with Jesus in fulfillment and complete love and the lack, the disappointment, the frustration points us in a painful way to the desire, the longing to be with Jesus, where those things won't happen mm-hmm. anymore, where we will be completely fulfilled and satisfied in Him. And so I think Song of Songs points us into that beautiful middle ground where, um, and I, I, my hope and prayer for us as we read this is for those of us who've been really I, I'm wounded, I think, by Christian subcultures of, of shame when it comes to sex and and just not even touching the, the topics with a 10-foot pole, that God would use this beautiful book that he's given us to re-instill a sense of beauty and goodness and love in the way that he has designed sex and, and the context that he has designed it for. And for those of us who maybe have haven't realized it, maybe even until right now, that the church really has made an idol of marriage, that God would bring us into a spirit of humility, and that he would allow us to see that he is the only and ultimate fulfillment of everything that we long for, and that uh, this book points us to a greater desire, a greater hope for not the garden, but a better recreated restored version of the garden where we're with God himself. When I think if, if we can actually read song of songs this way, I think it'll help us see it in that light. Yeah. It's a good word to end on. So it's been a pleasure talking about this today, Josh. We'll look forward to next time. It's been really good. Thanks, Nate.